your parents think you were crazy? Yes. Yes. Completely uh, we, we, insane. I mean, we both are super close to our families. We had our dads do a call they'd never met, and they were like, do you think she's crazy? Like, do you think my daughter's crazier? <laughs> From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. And this week, we're bringing you two boss ladies you may already be familiar with, Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg, the founders of The Skim. Uh, we were taking the news and talking about it and starting conversations with, you know, people whose day-to-day was not in the news for a living. And we created a really simple product. The Skim started as a newsletter about current events aimed at female millennials. The newsletter's tone is chatty and informal, but it's also really informative. And when you open it in your email inbox, it's like you're reading a news roundup note from your most in-the-know girlfriend. The way we write is how people talk. So sometimes you're like, what the F happened? And we'll write that. And sometimes it's not grammatically perfect because when you send an email to a friend, it's not grammatically perfect. And I think that there's this conversational element that some people are like sort of shaken by for better or worse. It also has a fascinating origin story that started with Weisberg and Zakin quitting their New York City jobs at NBC News. It caught on like wildfire really starting day one and I would say by day four, like we'd already received press. Like and and from there it just took on a life of its own. Years into the business, the skim has grown to be a lot more than just a newsletter. Weisberg and Zakin have moved their operations from their couch to a huge office space in Manhattan's Flatiron District. They also recently launched a video series, and they now have their own podcast, and they have a huge fan base of skim loyalists. We talked to them about all of it, asking them about their journey, how they made it as young female entrepreneurs, and what's next for the skim brand. Stay tuned for our interview with Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg. On the podcast, we'll be bringing you real talk with women bosses, asking how did you make it? And what advice would you give a woman looking to lead? If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter at APalmerDC. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with our founding partners, Google, and the Tory Burch Foundation. And now our interview with the Skim founders, Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg. Well, Carly and Danielle, thank you guys so much for joining us uh, for the Women Rule podcast. You have an interesting story. Uh, you started the Skim by writing a daily news digest for your friends. Take us back to that moment. What did you see in the market that no one else did? Sounds familiar a little bit. Uh, so thank you for having us. We are huge fans of Politico. Uh, and I think that's a great segue because we in some ways were Politicos and news junkies. We grew up uh, just loving news and always wanting to work in the industry. Uh, we basically grew up at NBC News. We worked every shift, every division, Secaucus, uh, uh, D.C., New York, all Lord over. Cliffs. Do yes. anything, go anywhere. Exactly. I think anyone listening to this probably knows the drill. Um, and we loved it. Unfortunately, we would then talk to our friends who were all over the country uh, who had graduated from grade schools and were trying to make their way in different fields. And they knew everything about what interests them 
or about what was really pertinent in their industries, right? Because that's kind of what you have time for after you graduate college. And we were in roles where we were being paid to read the news all day long. And I think it was the first time in our lives growing up news junkies, having families who talked about news and current events all day long, that we realized that at some point, this is just a matter of time, that you get so busy and there are so many demands for your attention. And time is the one thing that you it's so hard to create more of. Uh, so we thought about this and, and started reading about the demographic that we're in, female millennials, leading in so many different ways. And it just made no sense that there was no news source geared towards how this demographic likes to get information. Uh, and I think, you know, we had a great model in some ways of looking at playbook, of being such a staple to a certain demographic, right? That was how I started my day. It's how anyone that I worked with started their day. And what we wanted to recreate in some sense was this idea of morning television. And I think what Playbook had and also what morning TV really had in its heyday is this element of community. Mm -hmm. So how can you feel like you are getting what you need to start your day, but also that you're part of something greater. Um, and our audience was obviously, you know, female millennials that we felt like if we could get them uh, focused, if we could create a routine, something that got them five minutes every single day, and we could be a consistent value add, then that was a huge business. But walk us through me. You're on your couch kind of, you know, emailing your friends. It's very similar to the Playbook story, honestly. I mean, it was very organic uh, product that was kind of a note that went out to a newsroom at that time and then was monetized many years later. But basically, because people wanted to get on this list because they wanted to know what was happening. How did you even first know? I mean, you talk about it like, I mean, you had an audience, female millennials. I mean, you guys are kind of past that stage now. But where you went from the grain of like, okay, my friends like to read this too. Wow, we could like really do this. Well, um, you know, to be clear, we didn't just start it as a hobby to be like, here's for our friends. We we quit our jobs. Um, we were roommates in, in downtown Manhattan in a really tiny apartment. And I really emphasize tiny because this room we're in right now is small, but this was like palatial. Uh, <laughs> and we... Um, we knew that we had something. We knew it was something that we would read, our friends would read, but we quit. And then two days later, really a day later, sent out this email. Now, the very first people to receive the email were our friends at Extended Networks. Um, but from there, I mean, it, it caught on like wildfire really starting day one. And I would say by day four, like we'd already received press. Like, And, and from there, it, it just took on a life of its own. Did you – did your parents think you were crazy? Yes. Yes. Completely uh, we, insane. I mean, we both are super close to our families and we um, – you know, it's funny. When I think about it now, it's almost like, like – it's like we had like this like arranged marriage. Like we had our dads do a call they'd never met and they were like, do you think she's crazy? Like do you think my daughter's <laughs> I, crazier? I actually was thinking the other day that I think after we raised our seed round, I remember our dads telling us that like, you know, one of them called each other and they had this conversation and it was like um, – uh, wow, they they actually they did it. Like they, you I know, was talking kind to my dad recently. He was like, "Listen, like I don't even give you advice anymore because you you both do what you want to do, and you proved us wrong so far." He's like, "But there was just no talking to the two of you. I've never met two more stubborn people in my life." <laughs> and it was funny when I think about it now. I'm like, we were 25 years old, and we. He was like, "You were getting accountants and lawyers before you had." anything he's like you don't have a business and you're like i need my lawyer and he, and he said <laughs> so that great. our dads were like dying laughing because they're like have they lost it are they hallucinating and i think there was just there was no stopping us and so our parents you know 
we're, they've been incredible emotional rocks for us. There's no way we would have gone in um, this far without it. We were lucky. My family's in New York, and they made us a lot of dinners. And, um, you know, as we traveled, we'd always stay with Danielle's family. How did you get – a lot of the women listeners, a lot of our audience are thinking about either starting their own company or entrepreneurs or getting that next job and are changing to a different career path. What piece of advice or – what kind of thing did you hold on to that when you were kind of saying, all right, we're going to do this? You know, it's funny. I was, I was thinking about it. I was re- listening to um, a podcast. I won't name it. But yesterday, uh, um, Alexa Von Tobel, who's a big mentor of ours, um, she was interviewed. And the interviewer asked her, they said, do you think that you got your success because of luck or intelligence? And she said, neither. She said it was like her hustle. And I would say that I, I thoroughly agree with that because, you know, I wouldn't call us a success yet, but we I'm so proud of what we've built thus far. And we didn't get here by luck and we didn't get here by intelligence. Like we have hustled to the nth degree. And I think thankfully due to our background as journalists, and I'm sure you can relate to this, like you know how to talk to people, you know how to ask questions and you know how to network. Like that is exactly how you become a journalist. And I think, you know, that is the biggest piece of advice I would give to anyone, no matter what they want to do, if they want to start their own business or just want to change their career, like you have to know how to talk to people and you have to know how to ask for something in a polite way and use that as a stepping stone to get to the next thing. Totally. Talk your way into rooms you shouldn't get into. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, why do you think it has been? You said you wouldn't call yourself a success yet, but I mean, it has been very successful in a short amount of time. We're very successful. I'm knocking, I'm knocking on wood, not an audio failure. <laughs> I, I mean, in terms of that, why? Why do you think it has been so successful? I think the idea. It's really simple. Uh, and I think that there is kind of a genius in its simplicity that people, I think we found, want to feel connected to the greater world around them. But doing that every single day is much harder than you think, especially in a world where you are connected all of the time, it becomes overwhelming. It becomes even harder to then make time for something. Um, and and I think it's also depressing. Like news has a stigma and it's true. It's depressing the further that you get out of your comfort zone. And uh, that's just the facts. Um, so for us, you know, having this love of news, we wanted to take a broader look at what we had been doing our whole lives, which was basically acting as a news concierge. Uh, We were taking the news and talking about it and starting conversations with, you know, people whose day-to-day was not in the news for a living. And I think it's just about being engaged with the greater world around you. And we created a really simple product. And the company now is obviously much bigger than just that one product. But the skim makes it easier to live smarter. I think, you know, we we talk a lot about one of our values at Skim is uh, work smarter, not harder. Everyone here works really hard. And I think that's in some ways how we wanted people to live their lives, which is you're never going to get more time. So how can we make people more efficient and give them a conduit to become more connected with the world? Let's talk – I want to talk about the Skim, the product, and then I want to talk about all the other things you're doing because you have a lot of exciting things that uh, are on the horizon and that you've been trying out. As someone who writes a newsletter every morning very Which early, every day. <laughs> um, tone and audience is so important. You clearly have your audience nailed. But the tone of the skim is different than a lot of other newsletters or outlets or just in, in terms of kind of voice. How did you come up with it? How do you identify with it? It's kind of snarky. It's kind of fun. It's Our kind tone of – tone is how people talk. Like we get asked this a lot. You know, first of all, there's there's 
two things to say about it. One is we um, – it's not my voice. It's not Danielle's voice. We created a character. So, like, it is this character of the skim girl. The second is that we um, we we hope that we're not the only thing that people read. This, sh- this shouldn't be. We are for some people, and we're very proud of that. But we also, you know, we want people to be more engaged with the world around them, which is why we're very careful who we link out to and why we've set up other products that help you go a little bit deeper into to certain parts of information. But I think the way we write is how people talk. So sometimes you're like, what the F happened? And we'll write that. And sometimes it's not grammatically perfect because when you send an email to a friend, it's not grammatically perfect. And I think that there's this conversational element that some people are like sort of shaken by for better or worse. And I think that's been really part of the authenticity that has been the underlying factor behind the brand and what's also helped us get this far. I think there's also been a stigma for years in kind of the news and media world where there's a formality or there's an idea of routine. Um, And I think Carly and I were very much part of that world and we love that. But I think that solves getting people involved in news for people that are already involved in news. And for us, we saw, you know, for the millions of people that are out there that don't work in D.C. or don't necessarily live in New York or aren't on the coast, how do we create something that provides information every single day in a way that they trust and in a way that is conversational and takes out that element of um, – not knowing where to start. I think, you know, any reporter has weaknesses in, in what they're covering as a general news reporter. And I think when we first started, we definitely came into that in, in writing certain topics we were better at than others. And I remember, you know, on talking about um, certain things, if I had to read an article five times to understand the vernacular used, like, there's an issue. Right. And <laughs> I mean, that's I, one of the things yeah. I love about you guys is, like, when you – right, you're like, you're like, this is something we're paying attention to today. It's literally and I'm like, Jake and me G-chatting, right. mostly. I was yeah. actually just thinking when you were, like, talking about what time you guys send it out. I'm like, why don't we all have a group G-chat in the morning? How have we never figured that out? Off the record. Off the record. Just like, I'm tired. Yeah, mostly. That's like, oh, gosh. Is it Friday yet? Yeah. Um, but I think that was a big key to to creating something that is huge, has had mass appeal, is really something that people start their day with. It's it it's just conversational. Like you get it, and it can get you hooked on a particular interest that you didn't know you had before. I don't know the answer to this, but are there skimisms? Like I would say in playbook, there oh, are so many, yeah. a lot of things we that people know. You, the we'll like, give you. We'll send you home with a skimshinary. Yes, we um, have one. Explain it to you. Uh, we have many, many a skimism. Uh, I'm trying to think of our What's favorite. your favorite well, skimism? We skimify. Yeah, so there's that. Skimify. Um, um, we have a skimversary. Uh, we, we have a uh, skim day is our favorite holiday. It's um, it's, a, it's a very religious holiday. Well, uh, <laughs> skim ambassadors are probably the yes. biggest one that people know right. about. So now we have – over. Oh, and our sip and skims. Yeah. Um, I'm always jealous. I'm like, what is happening? Yeah, <laughs> well, Playbook needs skims, some skims. Sip and skims are in the office, but now it's become an interview series where right. we, we sip and, and skim with world leaders and other newsmakers. Right. So talk to me about, obviously, this company newsletter started. But as as you mentioned, skimries, sip and skim, you have all these kind of different event series, products that you're doing. How much of your day is still spent on the newsletter? Well, 
I think that what we are now taking a step back is that when we started and, you know, we started talking to venture and thinking about fundraising, everyone was like, are you a media company or are you a tech company? And if you're a media company, people would be like, well, I only invest in tech. And we would talk to tech companies and they'd be like, well, you know, I, I don't invest in media. And we found ourselves in this catch-22 that was so industry focused and made no sense. And at the end of the day, we really defined our own category, which is we're an audience company. We are building something that is for a very specific demographic and is really excited to grow with them throughout their lives as they start making decisions about investing and retiring and do they need a car? Probably not. We'll see. I'm baking on that one. Um, But I think, you know, at the end of the day, what we've created is a brand. So our entire day is focused on the brand. And the authenticity of that brand. And just so happens the email newsletter has the most amount of eyeballs on it every day, which was it was designed to be that way of how we build a membership and audience company. Um, So by virtue of that fact, like it is very much a part of our day. But our our energy and our um, our like mental capital is spent on the authenticity. Yeah, I wanted to ask about entrepreneurship and this kind of you guys have gone yeah. and you've done those pitch meetings and I mean I I assume they are very scary. It's horrible. <laughs> um, they're 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 the worst. literally the worst thing yeah. that you could ever do. And we have great investors, so like right. we lucked out, but. They're horrible. <laughs> and I think it's it's one of the big, biggest barriers to women entrepreneurship and yeah. women ownership of companies. Was there some a lesson you've learned or did you go in on the first you know, day and, like, you know, actually, have a big mistake? I was reading something, I don't know, something on Instagram last night when someone was talking about um, how hard it is to hear no's and then you have to keep going to other meetings. And actually, like, um, I think one of the skill sets that we were forced to develop – over the last few years is how to compartmentalize. You have to compartmentalize, you know, any personal challenges you have to be able to function during the day. You've got to compartmentalize stress that we have to be able to do something like this and and go back and forth. And that's, um, you know, I read a lot about it, like in Sheryl Sandberg's latest book, and, and she's been such a champion around that and a role model around that. And I think in a very tactical way, we really had to learn how to compartmentalize to to get rejections because you get reject you go to a meeting and someone just hates what you do, and they're like, I don't get it. This doesn't. This sounds too simple. Or email's dead. Or my wife reads it, but this is not for us. This isn't part of our investment thesis. Or where's your technical co-founder? And it's just like being slapped over and over again about something that you believe in a lot, but they're tapping on every insecurity you have. And then you've got to go walk in with a big smile on your face, with all the confidence in the world, to the next meeting. And or then go from that meeting to try to hire someone and try to convince them on why they should give up every sense of stability they have for them and them and their families to join you. And that is a real test um, and a real muscle we had to learn and build about compartmentalization, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think the two things that I've taken away from it are – and, and this is kind of, you know, fundraising in general. Is one, our best pitches at any stage of the company have been when we already had someone committed. And you just don't care. You just do <laughs> not care. And you need the confidence, right? Exactly. And so I think starting reminding myself every meeting that I have and starting from that mental point. I mean, our first real lesson with that was our first investors, our seed, um, our, our lead for our seed round was Homebrew Ventures. We were their first New York investment. They had like two investments to their name. Like it was a chance on on each other. And at that point, we had already had so many rejections. We were like, we will never go back to San Francisco. We still have like PTSD when we land in San Francisco. Get the sweats. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. I hate San Francisco because I remember now what it was like for us. And I used to love it there. But we um, we thought we already had it lined up with someone else. So we took this call. We were like, it's fine. 
I'm sure they're nice. Then we were like, you know what? Let's just go out and meet them. And we met them. And we we walked in with all the confidence in the world. And it was the first meeting we had when we walked out. We had an email with an offer from them by the time we got to the airport. And it, we looked at each other and we're like, did we present differently? Did we say anything different? And it was because we walked in with a different type of confidence where we weren't putting everything on it. Mm -hmm. So we were just ourselves. I think the other thing, too, is something I remember reading about how Bill Clinton in the earlier years would fundraise, Mm -hmm. which was inviting people to participate in his vision. And I think that that is a really interesting way to phrase fundraising. And I think that's been one of the things that great founders do really, it's really, really well. It's really hard to do it that way. <laughs> when, yeah, it's really hard. Um, and I think we've done better at that when we've, you know, gone into these meetings a little bit more confident. But it is true because you're getting married to these people that are investing in you. And at the end of the day, you need to have a say and you need to be able to say, you know, that money may be great and so, so attractive. But at the end of the day, I really don't want to be married to you. And we've done that. I think a lot of people have had that position and it's not easy. Obviously, it's a hard thing to do. But did you ever feel – you didn't have any business – formal business training. None. You're women and young women at that. Did you ever feel like people just didn't take you seriously? All the time. All the time. I mean – up until last week, someone texted me and was like, hey, um, I thought you might start thinking about how to think about your company more strategically. And I thought it was a wrong text, honestly. And I was like – and then I reread it and I was like, is this a joke? Like we've raised how much money? We have how many employees? We have built a business. We've become businesswomen because of the skim and people still think that we don't know how to run the business or think about the business. And I think um, – For all the factors that you named, um, 100%. And also, you know, in in fairness or plain devil's advocate, like we were really green. We didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, we said really stupid things that you don't say. And and, um, that was a reflection of how green we were. So I think, um, you know, there's always different sides to every story. But um, we absolutely had a really uh, challenging time. And and many times we're treated very differently because of the factors you named. So let's talk about the other things that you're doing. So you have the skim as kind of the overarch, as how I think about the overarch kind of branching a product, but you've got a lot of other things that you're focused on. I do. And I think the big thing, there's a lot of things that we're doing for 2018. We just launched our own podcast. Yes, congratulations. Uh, Welcome. The water is warm. Skim from the couch. And we're really excited about that. I think audio has been the number one thing that our audience has wanted from day one. It really fits into the idea of commuting and behaviors there. And we're excited to talk to female entrepreneurs. Uh, So really excited about that. Um, One thing that we are always excited out. And I think if you ask anyone that works at Skim HQ is probably what they're most excited about is our No Excuses campaigns, um, which is kind of our civic engagement arm. We registered 110,000 people to vote in the 2016 election, and we are definitely gearing up for the midterms. I think we've been really excited about how many women we see running for office and from our audience, just how um, how amped they are for to get involved. And that means a lot of different things. If it's not running, it's registering other people, it's getting involved and really diving in on the issues. And so that is going to be a big part of our focus this year. Great. I wanted to ask you about kind of this cultural moment that we're in, because that's obviously a lot of, I, I think, touching your audience, probably in particular with the Me Too movement, with Time's Up. How are you approaching that? Are, are you involved in it? Is it something that you're hearing a lot of feedback from from women? Absolutely. I mean, I think 
I think it says a lot that it had to be pointed out to us in recent months that we are one of the only female-founded companies going after women in the information space. The others are all founded by men who hired a female editor-in-chief or a female brand officer. There's an authenticity to what we do every day that in many ways, you know, we used to say what we did was a, responsi- was a privilege, and then it shifted to a responsibility. And I think it's not lost on us what we now have as an obligation. Um, we have an obligation to inform as many people as possible, to empower them to feel informed about how they vote, to hopefully have more women running, to hopefully elect more women in office. And, you know, we're a nonpartisan company, but I think everyone can get behind that. Um, and I think for us, we also have an obligation as being female founders. Um, that there, there's more to our story than just, you know, did the skim raise money or how is the skim doing? It's um, we, we are in a little bit of a league of our own, and that's a very um, that that is a privilege and an obligation for us. Um, and I think we're absolutely, you know, very supportive of the Times Up movement, um, and we are part of it. And um, we also are a company that, um, you know, is a majority female employees. And, you know, we're all going through life stages together, and uh, it's something really important to us to to um, to set the tone. In terms of kind of the the politics and you guys kind of the news background, you did a lot of interviews in the 2016 election with presidential candidates. Where do you see that going? Have you tried to engage much with the with the Trump administration? I think we would love to keep it going. Um, you know, we've certainly continued that uh, with not just people that are running. You know, we're branching it out, I think, to newsmakers and also politicians and world leaders in general. Um, I think that will definitely be part of our 2018 midterm campaign. And now that we have video and audio in our company uh, up and running as well, that's something we definitely will utilize going forward. So talk about, we didn't talk about the video. What, what is the theory behind the case there? Yeah. So um, for us, we look at audio and, and video in, in, in the same way in that we're never audio first or video first. We're audience first. So um, we've not been one of those companies that have put everything we have into the video bucket. And it's sort of funny when you think about our only vocational training in our lives has been in video. Right. It's the only thing that we actually like know how to do and we're trained and have that confidence to do. Everything else we've had to learn as we go. And so I think that always surprises people because we've been really careful about how we've done video. Um, it's easy to fail. It's very easy to fail. And so we're still figuring it out. So we're about out of time here. But I do want to ask in terms of kind of what's next. Obviously, you're very focused on the 2018 yeah. civic engagement. You've got a lot of your hands in a lot of different pots. This partnership has been going strong for five and a half years. As someone who's part of a duo, that can be be great times and sometimes challenging. But do you see the two of you kind of continuing on here and, you know, developing as as this kind of continues to grow? I think that one of the biggest things that we count as successful in the the history of the company, I think, is our dynamic and our relationship. I think that there have been very few – co-founder models that last for this long there's you know we might be the only co- yeah, co-ceo model that has lasted this long and i think uh it just is the backbone it's the foundation to the company we put when we started i think we started at the exact same life stage and financial stage and our parents went into this together um we viewed it as a true partnership and i think that stays the same today I think you, you know, talking about time and lack of time in the beginning, uh, the one thing that neither of us has time for definitely is to think about whether or not we can trust our business partner. Um, and you, if you are spending any thought capital on that, um, you shouldn't be in business together. So 
I think we have spent a lot of time laying out ground rules from the beginning of what works for us, and we stay true to that. And I think because of that, our company has really flourished, um, and we see a lot of big things in our future. <laughs> All right. Well, TBD. I appreciate it. Well, thanks so much, ladies, for <laughs> your time. You. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Women Rule is produced by Rena Flores. Dave Shaw is our executive producer, and our booker is Jessica Andrews. If you're a fan of the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. We've also got a lot of great guests coming up. In coming weeks, we'll bring you conversations with the CEO of Swell, Sarah Koss, and the founders of the plus-size clothing line Universal Standard, Paulina Vexler and Alex Waldman. You don't want to miss any of those episodes, so hit that subscribe button, and thanks for listening.